titled it The Command Principles. As we go through here in chapters 19 and 20, we're going to see, again, God continuing to use Moses to prepare the, his people to go into the promised land. And when they go to the promised land, there are, there are some command principles. These are not negotiable principles. These are not think about it and take her to leave it kind of principles. When God says, this you shall do, this shall is a must. It is, is a commandment. You have to do according to his will and purpose. And he has very good reasons why he gives commands and principles of these commands. So it's better for their life and better for the nation of the, for the nation. In this case, the nation of Israel. Because as a nation and as a, as a, as a child of, of God even today, there are very key important commandments or principles that God gives us in the scriptures to protect us. Protect us from what? From ourselves many times, but protection from the enemy that is, is out there, the protection for the, this world that is, is still fallen and that you and I came out of, but we still live here. We're still in these bodies and there has to be boundaries. If not, we can suffer and we can have tremendous problems if we do not follow those command principles. And there's no different here as God's teaching us how he set this order up in purpose through these two chapters and continuing in Deuteronomy. Uh, and, and we'll see what the Lord has for us tonight. So we see here, we start off by talking about the cities of refuge that must be provided. It was a command principle that you will set these, these refuge, uh, city of refuge up. Look, look, look here at Deuteronomy chapter 19. They'll take verses 1 through 3. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslaughter a manslayer may flee there. So we see in these three verses what he's commanding a principle they need to set up when they go into the promised land, but also the purpose of it. It was for the purpose of a manslayer that had a place for them to flee. So God wanted to instruct Israel to make these three cities uh, of refuge in the promised land. And as we studied in previous, in the, in the books of, of uh, in Numbers and, on, and certainly in Joshua and an earlier part of Deuteronomy chapter 4, we saw that God instructed, they set these three cities of refuge to the promised land, instructed them to make them centrally located in the midst of the land. So they, they had to take a look at the land, they had to measure out the land, and each of the cities were to be measured appropriately from north, central, south. And they said you must have an, build roads to those cities. Now, there are two other important passages that you want to go back and read on these cities of refuge. Again, Numbers chapter 35, verses 9 through 28, and Joshua chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. And the full understanding of these city of refuge, our purpose, the practice of these cities, or all in all of these passages. So you need to read all three to understand fully uh, what God had intended in this principle. 
we already know that Moses has already established Bizar, uh, Ramoth, and Golan, which is the Golan Heights that we hear about in today's world. It's in that kind of the territory. And these were the first three cities of refuge that were set up, if you remember. And you can go back to Deuteronomy 4, verses 41 through 43. And it was on the east side of the Jordan. Remember, the couple of the tribes wanted to settle on the east side because the farmland was beautiful and everything was gorgeous and everything great. They weren't willing to go across the Jordan River into the promised land that God had promised. They were, they were content to be almost in the promised land. And God allowed that. That ended up long term, you know, in the scriptures, that didn't turn out very well for them because they were right in the midst of the enemy and, uh, and caused some problems. But they established the first three refuge uh, cities right there on the east side of the, of the Jordan. Now he's talking now here tonight to establish three more on the west side when they get into the promised land. Look at it, verses uh, four through seven, because he gives it up the purpose and, the, and, the, and the, the, the goodness of why this has to be. And it says, this is the case of the manslayer who flees there that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in the past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke with an axe to cut down the tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to the one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood, that is a person, avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him. Because the way is long and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in the past. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. So the, the scenario is this, you know, the two guys are just probably best of buds. Going out and cooking, uh, cooking cutting down the timber and, and oh this is great they're having a great time this is a, a best of buds moments here and there's an accident axe comes off hits his buddy in the head kills him what am I going to do he's grieving potentially he's like I can't believe I did this to my brother I can't believe we're out here doing this every weekend this is terrible how could this happen but God knows that there is a person in each family called an avenger of blood that could be so upset, so angry, that they have the right to go take his life for taking another life. Well, God set it up so that this man could get on one of those roads that we talked about in the first three verses there and run straight and easily to the nearest city of refuge. And that man had to live in that city, as you remember the scriptures previously, he had to live there. He was then judged to see if it was an accident or not. And if it wasn't unintentional and it wasn't on purpose, he didn't hate this man. He had to live there until the high priest died. And who didn't know when the high priest was going to die? That I mean, it could be years and years before that man would die before he could be, leave that city. Because he could never leave that city and go back home to his family. But God set this up because he wanted to protect the life. It practices what we understand in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. So God made it very clear to the people, taking someone's life 
is a very serious deal and it should be dealt with appropriately. And in the cases for an accident, this avenger of blood was appointed by members of a family. It was called the goel, G-O-E-L in the Greek. That person, that family protector designated to protect and honor and the lives of a family, his interest would not be to gather evidence to prove this was unintentional or not. His purpose was to be avenge of, uh, the avenger of blood to go and seek that man to kill his life because he took the family member's life. But God set it up that he could go to a place, be safe, be protected by the elders, look to see and show and prove that this was unintentional and that he could stay. But we'll see here later on, if it was intentional, they found out that he did hate this man and he did it on purpose. He would then be brought back by the elders to the avenger of blood to be killed. Now, where else do we see this avenger of blood or this this family member being used by in the scriptures to help a family. Well, the first one is the near kinsman, which was responsible for redeeming or buying a relative out of slavery. We saw that when we studied Leviticus 25 verses 48 and 49. This same person also was the redeeming a relative's property when it's that situation that needed to be done. That was in Leviticus 25 verses 26 and 33. We also see that this same person is the one that was, would marry a relative's widow and raise up children in the name of the deceased, like Ruth's in, in the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verse 13, chapter 4, verses 5 through 10. And of course, the avenging the death of a relative, we see that back in Numbers 35, verses 19 through 28. So this was a very important role. So you, every family had one, and they took that responsibility uh, seriously. In verses 8 through 10, we're going to see another command principle about appointing these additional cities of refuge. It says, now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as we, as he swore to your fathers and gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you keep all these commandments and do them, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourselves besides these three, lest uh, innocent blood sh be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So he says here, as you go in the process and you're establishing these cities of refuge and you are following God's commandments, you're doing what God's calling you, you're being led by the God, the Lord, you're loving the Lord your God, you're walking always according to his ways, you're obedient. God's going to enlarge your territory. And when you enlarge your territory, don't forget, you need to establish these additional three cities of refuge, which means there's a total of nine that God in intended. And so when we take a look at this and we are seeing three and one on the east side of the river and about six on the other side, only three initially and unless the territory is enlarged and it can add additional ones, this was important that God wanted to understand. In verses 11 through 13, we're going to see 
uh, something very important that's going to be laid out in regards to justice and how to deal with certain situations. And it says here, but if anyone hates his brother and lies in wait for him, rises against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of the blood that he may die your eye shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. So there was a responsibility just because these cities were set up of cities of refuge. People who were guilty of killing someone on purpose didn't get to go use that city of refuge and be a, a city, you know, a place you can hold and hide out. No, no, no. They watched everyone come into the city. And why are you into the city? You're not from the city. And, oh, I'm from this city. I'm running here. I need to be protected. Once they understand that this person's guilty, immediately the elders had a responsibility to get that sin, that guy out of the camp and take him back because that person is going to be dealt swiftly by being killed as well. Capital punishment because they took someone's life. Now, it's easy to imagine that this could happen and that these people would use the city of refuge uh, for, it's supposed to be intended for the innocent, not for, uh, for, the, for the guilty. And, uh, and so they can't just find out that place there. Now, it's interesting as we get into these verses, the question always is for many is like, why do we read the Old Testament and, uh, and just why don't we just read the New Testament? Well, you have to understand as you read something like this subject matter, the city of refuges, you can see the clear linkage to Jesus. Can you not? Can you see the Bible gives this beautiful picture of the city of refuge to believers finding refuge in God and uh, on more than one occasion, we see it in uh, Hebrews 6, uh, 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might find strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of hope set before us. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge in strength, a very present help in trouble. More than 15 times we see in the book of Psalms speaking of God being our refuge. So when these are people who had needed a place of refuge, they ran to the city of refuge. Just like us, when we need help, we've come to and run to God for our refuge. He is our refuge. So both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within easy reach. The way the cities were supposed to be lined up, roads being nice and taken care of and clear for a clear, fast pathway so that person could rush to get there in time without being caught. And that needy person needing to find refuge needed to be an easy path to do that. And we could easily come to Jesus if you would just come to him for your refuge. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are open to all. It wasn't just for the Israelites. It was for all, even foreigners and strangers. They could all run to the city of refuge. It was not just for a small niche group called the Israelites. And so one who needs to not no longer fear, they, they would be turned away at the place of refuge in the time of need. Same as too. God will not turn you away if you will come to him in your time of need for refuge. Jesus will receive you. Both Jesus and the city of refuge become a place where one in need 
would live. You don't come to a city of refuge for a time of need to just look around. This is a place where you need to come and dwell. And you need to, to not be only temporary. It is to be able to be there for uh, uh, long term. Both Jesus and the city of refuge are the only alternative for the one in need. Without this specific protection, they were absolutely going to be killed by that, that, that family member. If, apart from Jesus, if we do not come to him, you are going to be punished for your sin. So we have to come to Jesus as our refuge, as our protect, our savior. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries. To go outside of that city, we know in Numbers 35, verses 26 through 28, you are not safe. It's not like the game of tag, where you go over there and you're running and they're being chased and, you're, and your buddy's almost catching you, diving, you touch. He's like, I'm safe, I'm safe, you can't touch me. But you always have to keep the hand on the, on the spot, don't you? Because your friend's right there ready to touch you if you let go of the spot. You know what I'm, you know, that's not an old game, is it? Kids play that game anymore, tag? Maybe not. Your face is telling me all of you are over 30 or saying, yes, I know that game. Anyone under 30, look, I'm looking and going, I don't have no idea what the pastor's talking about. We'll talk to you about it later. Maybe we'll play that at uh, the picnic or something. I don't know. I'd probably get hurt. I shouldn't put that out there. How important it is we see that both Jesus and the city of refuge, full freedom comes with the death of the high priest. Remember, the only way they could be released from the city of refuge is when the high priest dies. And we are set free because of our high priest has died for us. Now we see in verse 14, a command principle of the landmark. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of the old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Now, it's interesting that this is kind of sets between the city of refuges, refuge, and then you're going into uh, the next principle about false witnessing. And it's like, where is this all connected? But these are all the legal principles uh, that God says these command principles you must follow. So there was a problem back in these days when the, the boundaries and land masses were declared and they made markers and said, this is your land and it's, it always will be in your family the rest of your generation upon generation upon generation. Can you imagine people were out there moving your, your stakes of the corners of your property? People were moving them to get, stealing your property and taking more property. Oh, they're not looking. That's miles away. Let's pull that stake up, move that over. And blah, blah, blah. They didn't have the sophistication of, of uh, GPS to, to tell you where your property lines are on your property. These were markers and they could potentially people losing it. And so people had to understand, if you move this marker, you're going to be in deep trouble. Because any man who, the law reflects how important that, that you do not touch it and, uh, and commands that you have to have this because of, for human society. The, the, it has to understand the right to personal property is established here. God has clearly entrusted certain possessions to certain individuals and other people 
of, or states are not permitted to take the property without due process of law. So you just can't come and take someone's property. And God established that early on in the, in the scriptures here for us, early on. And it should be still today. The government and them should not be able to come and move your, and taking your neighbors and moving their markers because you want more property. It's, it's not how it works. And it should be due process for law. But look, notice that, that this at the end there, it says, uh, I, I, I kind of find, or in the middle there, it says that neighbor's a landmark, which the men of old have set. I mean, there are certain things that have been set and been set for years upon years upon years and generation upon generation. And people want to come in and change history. They want to change things because they just want it more modernized and everything else. There's reasons why the old men have set the things that they set. Because it was good in their right. And many times you'll see that. I'm going to change that. And they go, man, everything's messed up. Why did that mess up? Because you changed the way it was designed to be. You should have kept it the way it was. It's, it was good and right the way it was. So, but it's the same reflects the importance of spiritual principle. It isn't wise to ignore what the, old, the men of old have said. When doing the work of the Lord, a many a young man or new man has greatly hindered his own work. Because they're just wanting to be revolutionary and change things up and move and change it. But no, there's landmarks that have been set for a long time. Now, verses 15 through 20, we see a command principle around true and false witnesses. And we say, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin in that he commits. But the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judge, judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful in, in, inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a, is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. What a great thing here. You have a, someone who falsely accuses you of doing something, and when they find out that that person was falsely accused, that was what is going to happen to them. Can you imagine how quickly, once people understand that's the rule, that's the principle, that you lie against someone and accuse of someone, and you want to get them to thrown into jail and find out you lied, you go into jail automatically. You think, oh, they stole, chop off his hand. <laughs> Watch out. You're going to, if you were telling a lie, it's going to come back and you're going to reap what you sow. And so we see this here, but some have carried this principle to modern courts uh, where there's not two or three witnesses. There was only one witness. And what do you do if you don't have two or three witnesses? Well, we have to be very careful in that judge. Those are the circumstances we talked last week. Remember, if the local judges and the priests could not judge because it was difficult, they were to raise it up to the tribune uh, uh, council, which was the chief priest and the, and the head uh, judges and everyone. They made those harder decisions. Modern day courts, if you don't have two or three witnesses, they now have what we call two independent lines of evidence that can validate witnesses. 
For example, if there were a murder which no one witnessed with their eyes, yet there is a murder weapon with clear fingerprints and additional blood evidence which pointed to one suspect, this would be counted as two independent witnesses that could be judged upon and find someone guilty. Now, if a false witness rises against any man to testify and discovered in the examination, then that was automatically that false accuser would be brought under justice. Now, it's interesting, if you remember, in the trial of Jesus, many false witnesses rose up against him, remember? But none of them died. All of them should have died. They were all were demonstrating false witnesses and brought confusion and contrary, uh, uh, contradictory testimony. We saw that in Matthew 26, verses 59 and 60. And all those false witnesses under Jewish law should have paid the price of death for their lives for being as punishment because they sought after an innocent man. Now, many modern people doubt that a punishment of others is an effective deterrent to crime. But I lean on what the Bible says. And when the Bible says that this type of justice, you accuse someone of murder and find out it's false, you end up paying that, that price, that is on very Quickly, many people say, that doesn't help. You can't do capital crime and, and, and death penalty. That doesn't affect. But the Bible tells otherwise. That's a very effective punishment and deterrent of people to stay within what is right and good and not be false witnesses and to do what is wrong. Again, I'll go with the Bible, not with modern law today. We also see in verse 21, the command principle for the court of law regarding eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. It says right here, your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life and eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, this is an important principle, command principle, for the Bible court of law. Here, why? Because it's connected to the punishment described for false witnesses. And it shows that whatever evil was planned or practiced against another, a similar punishment would be brought against that false witness. Now, when you see here this life shall be for life and eye for life, it's called the law of retribution. And it was always limited by the eye for eye principle. It was a law that was meant to put a check to our desire to revenge, or not a license to revenge. Humans have a tendency, if someone took the eye, they not only want to take your eye, but they also want to take your hand, your foot, and your, whole, your head off. God says, no, 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 you have, there's boundaries, you can't turn it into revenge. It is, is just punishment and God designed it where it would be eye for eye or tooth for tooth, hand for hand, uh, foot for foot. Meaning it is important that you keep understanding our tendency is to do more than to the offending party than they had done to us. It was a, a punishment. It, it can't be punished. The person cannot be punished 
from a motive of revenge, only from a motive of justice. And that is always what we need to check our hearts on. If something, someone did something to you or to a loved one, be very careful. Your motive of coming after them is always based on justice and not based on revenge. It's very important we keep that check. Matthew 5, verses 38 and 39, Jesus quoted this passage in his teaching on the true interpretation of the law. He does not say that the eye-for-eye eye principle is wrong. Rather, he simply condemns the use of it to make an obligation to exact revenge against someone. What you have to remember in the scripture and specifically here, this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand to hand, foot to foot, is not for personal punishment. It's not you personally wanting to punish someone else. This law is for the law courts of Israel, that's what this law or this command principle is around, is for the guide for the judges in making right decisions on court decisions. That eye for eye is not for us personal relations or punishment that we would do. Now in chapter 20, we see instructions concerning uh, the welfare and specifically preparing for the army to help protect Israel here. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, sees the command principle in regards to how important it is you start by trusting in God. Look at what it says here. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up, brought you up from the land of Egypt. So right here, Israel, he's telling the nation of Israel, a small nation surrounded by a lot of enemies, lots and lots of empires that are so much stronger, has all the weapons and sophistication and everything else. He says, I know, I see it. I, I see what you see. I, I, I get it. You can get fearful, but no, don't be fearful. Why? Because don't forget your trust is in me. The all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. I see all things, I know all things, and I can stop heartbeats like that. I can bring down thunder, whatever I want to bring down from the heavens to wipe them out. I can bring pestilence across and wipe them out. I can bring my, one of my angels across and wipe out a thousand people in a night. Hundreds of thousands of people. So don't worry about it. I, 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 you're, you're in my camp. I am watching over you. And that's what he's saying to them. And Moses is reminding them, God has your back. He's the one that's going to do the work. He's the one that's going to wipe out the enemy. He's just going to use you, but he's the one that's going to do the work in and through you. So don't worry about these people who have everything and all the latest gizmos and weapons and everything else. I am with you. And if no weapon can be formed against you, none. Paul says it in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? One with God. One with God makes us unbeatable. The unbeatable majority. Why? Because our God can take anything out, everybody out, if he wanted to. And he reminds them, don't forget, I took out the most powerful nation at that time, Egypt. 
They had all the chariots. They had everything. And they're now swimming like guppies and died. And he's reminding them of what God has done in their life to bring them through enemy after enemy after enemy. He says, don't worry about it. The next command is to encourage the people before the battle. He says in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 20, So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. Maybe that should happen today. The, the, the pastors they should go in front of the, of the troops being sent out overseas and should be the one talking, right? Trying to encourage them. But that's what happened then. And he said, he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. And do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. How powerful that is. The priest who represents God and speaks for God at that time sits there and says that to you before you're going and facing an enemy that's so much larger and so much bigger and has all the things to just to give you the peace through and by the word of God. That's why I encourage the men and women who are going to go overseas to go to the battles and stuff over these years since we started in 2011. I always encourage them, remember God is with you. You're a child of God. And I bring them to the word of God and make sure they read the word of God while they're over there to be encouraged by that, the fact that God is with them and nothing will escape the eye of God and the protection he has on you. You have that assurance. Verses 5 through 9, we see uh, how God wants to get all the glory and not the size of the army or the power of the army. Look what happens then. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Who's a man who's going to build a house and then not get a chance to live in it? That's really what he's saying here. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. Also, what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? You did all the work of planting and you didn't partake of it at all? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. Three things. Here you're going to battle. There's a big army that you have. He's telling the officers you're going to turn to all of these men and say three categories. Anyone here build a house and hasn't moved into it yet? Step out of, out of ranks. You're going home. Anyone here planted a vineyard, planted their stuff, and if you hadn't participate, or partake of any of that, still was going? Get out of the line. You're going back home. You're not going to war. Any of you just a betrothed? You're engaged? You haven't gotten married? You haven't commenced that? You, you know, fully commenced that? Okay, raise your hand. You're out. Go home. None of you. You're, you're going to be distracted on those three things than going and you're having your head fully engaged to fight the enemy. So you're distracted, you three, you're out. The three groups are out. But look what happens here. 
The officers also shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brother faint like his heart. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. So they sift them out. That last category is anyone who's overall fearful and faint-hearted. We need to have you step out. Why? Because if you're fearful and faint-hearted, you're going to be ill spread within the ranks and others will become fearful because they see you fearful. You're faint-hearted. Everyone's around. You're going to start getting faint-hearted. It will spread. Get out. We want bold, strong, faithful, ready, no distracting men to go to war because that is what it will take. And so the officer, then they appointed and made captains of the armies to lead the people. So everything is now is set. You can then go. What a beautiful example that we have in the story of Gideon, right? In Judges 7. It's a powerful illustration because Gideon started with how many people in the army? 32,000 men. But that was too big, God said. So he sent home those who were afraid. And that went down to 22,000 people left, men left. But it wasn't still too big. So God had said to send home the 7,700 more. So he, also, he only had an army of 300 to fight against the Midianite army who had 135,000 people. And God said, that's all I need. 300 to wipe out 135,000. God gets all the victory and glory through it all. Does he not? Because nowhere in anyone's logical mind would say they stand a chance. Now we see the uh, illustrations or instructions, I should say, for the battle here in verses 10 through 11. A, a very command principle about the offer of peace. Notice this here. When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offering of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. So these people weren't hungry to go fight wars. God says, no, 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 no. The principle is very clear. When you go out there and you make known, we're going to come against you because you got to go. But if you want peace with us, we're willing to accept your peace. And then you will be our servants and you will be uh, subject to us. Give that, uh, that, that city an opportunity to instead of being wiped out. God was very gracious, very merciful to that. He wasn't looking to raise up an army to go out and just slaughter people. He was giving them an opportunity to surrender and to give. Then we see what happens next in verses 12 through 15. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but make war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women and the little ones and the livestock and all that is in the city and all its spoils, you shall plunder for yourself and you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your, your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not... The, uh, which are not of the cities of these nations. So typically a walled city was conquered by through a siege. 
a siege. They would surround the city. They would blockade. People can't come and go. No commerce, no getting anything. Whatever you have in that city, you better be able to survive on it. And the enemy's armies would surround and they would cut off these supplies. And it could last for years before the sieges. We see that in the scripture. We know historically, if you want to go back and hear a, a, read a horror horrific siege in the scriptures of the siege of Samaria go back to 2nd Kings chapter 6 verses 20 through 24 through 33 and read about that that that's a that's an incredible siege but it says right here if they will not have peace they're willing to fight you and we're, I'm going to take over that every male uh, that's in there uh, has to be taken out why because in that day Anyone who was taken over by an enemy, you were sworn to avenge and come back against your enemy. So if they let you live, your whole life was all about trying to get back after the enemy. So because of that, any male who uh, they captured was killed because they knew all these men, if they lived, they would always be looking to come against you as a nation who, who won. So plunder, of course, was their wages. So how the army was paid was whatever you conquered and whatever you were able to plunder and get out, any wealth or any foods, or any stock and anything, it was yours because that's how you got paid being a soldier. But look here on verses 16 and 18, dealing with the Canaanites. But of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathe remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Parasite, the Hevite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest, lest they uh, teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods and you sin against the Lord your God. So here the, uh, Moses highlights the Canaanites and some of those categories of tribes in here. The only one that's not mentioned that is mentioned in Deuteronomy 7.1 is the Girgashites. That's the only other one that was not mentioned in this part, but mentioned early on in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. But all of these people in the different sections of the promised land, some were hill dwellers, the Amorites, some were the, those inhabitants of the Palestine area, the Parasites were village dwellers or nomads in some cases. Uh, the Hittites were Lebanon mountains, that's where they, they tucked up in there. We see that in Joshua 13. Uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 3. All of these people, God says, you're going to come up to these Canaanite cities and you're not giving them an, op an option. These, these people are so wicked and so evil and so degenerate. Socially, spiritually, morally, these are irredeemable people, God says. And they're ripe for judgment. And I'm going to use you to judge them. And when you go in there, you take, you wipe it out completely. You don't even offer peace to them. You don't take anything from them. You just wipe them out completely. That's how evil this, these people are. And he says, if you don't, if you allow just a little bit to stay, they will teach you to do according to their abominations. If you keep the women, they're going to start marrying you, and they're going to bring false gods in. You start taking their food customs and all these, it's going to creep in, and it's going to go. 
it's got to go. It cannot have any remnants of this degenerate, evil society that is coming, that you're going to go conquer. And it's got to go. And, and this is a command principle. Regardless, God knows what's best. And finally, verses 19 and 20, the command principle here is about saving trees. For you tree huggers, here's the saving trees moment. But again, it's around the siege here. It says right here, when you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by uh, wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down to build a siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. And I kind of pondered on this a little bit. This is a really interesting little moment here at the end of chapter 20. But I think it's so wise of God because he says, don't go out crazy. Think, think through these things. He says, yes, I need you to, you're going to cut down the trees because you're going to use every resource possible to create the barriers and the siege and the rams and everything else to be able to camp around these, this enemy to be able to take over. But be wise. Don't cut the trees down that produces fruit. Keep those trees because you're going to need it food for you. You're going to need it to be supplied for you because we don't know if it's going to be months or years from now. Make sure you don't touch those trees. So an army surrounding a city during a siege, countryside, you need supplies. Yes, you need wood to build and fuel for the thing, but keep the city trees around the place because long term, uh, you're going to need them for the purposes of war and survival as a people. Remember, you're going to siege this city. You're going to dwell in this city, and it takes time for trees to grow and to produce fruit. Make sure you don't touch those trees so because you're going to take over that city, and you'll have those trees for generations to come. See, God knows. He's not... Everything's calculated. It's an order, purpose. So when he makes command principles, listen and obey. As you're studying the Word of God, and he shows you very clearly where the boundaries are and what he wants you to do, be obedient. Even though you may not fully understand, just be obedient to the word of God. Amen?